If you've studied at the business school, you probably didn't attend any Bayesian stats course there. Well, this isn't like that in every business school. Ellie McDonald Fight does integrate Bayesian methods into her teaching at the Business School of Drexel University in Philadelphia, United States. Ellie is an assistant professor of marketing at Drexel, and in this episode, she'll tell us which methods are the most useful in marketing analytics and why. Indeed, Ellie develops data analysis methods to infer marketing decisions, such as designing new products and planning advertising campaigns. Often faced with missing, unmatched, or aggregated data, she uses MCMC sampling, hierarchical models, and decision theory to decipher all this. After a master's degree in industrial engineering at Lehigh University and a PhD in marketing at the University of Michigan, Ellie worked on product design at General Motors and was most recently the executive director of the Wharton Customer Analytics Initiative. Thanks to all these experiences, Ellie loves teaching marketing analytics and Bayesian and causal inference at all levels. She even wrote a book called R for Marketing Research in Analytics with Chris Chapman at Springer Press. In summary, I think you will be pretty surprised by how Bayesian the world of marketing is. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 23, recorded June 12, 2020. Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the project, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbasedstats.anvil.app. That's learnbasedstats.anvil.app. Do you want to support the podcast and unlock exclusive patient swag at the same time? Then you can visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash stats. Starting at $3, you can get various benefits like the private LearnBase Stats Slack channel, early access to special episodes, selecting questions for episodes, or even coming on the show. You'll get more details at patreon.com slash stats. Thanks a lot, guys. I'm very grateful for any support. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. What's a Bayesian? It's someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen, maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming how would i know unless i'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo controlled science like i'm richard ellie mcdonald fight welcome to learning bayesian statistics i'm so excited to be here i'm really glad to have you here uh, you were the first bayesian marketing people to join the show and lots of listeners have asked me for such topics so really glad to talk about bayesian marketing analytics with you today I can't wait to get started. <laughs> well, let's get started, but let's get started by your background, as usual, because you started with mathematics and you finished with marketing. So it sounds to me that you went into more and more applied topics as you studied, but that's my prior. I want to know how to update it now. So basically, what's your story, Ellie? Well, I always liked math. And I think I got an undergraduate degree in math just because it seemed like a good idea to build up those skills, but I wasn't that interested in doing pure math. I did a research experience for undergrads at Lafayette College, 
where I did some discrete math. So like, if you look at my Google Scholar, you'll find those papers. But I was always more interested in using math to solve problems. And I'm also kind of interested in people. So I was actually at a happy hour one day. I had this job at General Motors and I went to a happy hour and there was this guy probably 30 years older than me who'd been doing market research for a long time. And he said, what's your story? And I said, what I really want to do is I want to use math to understand people so that General Motors can make better cars. And that turned out to be telling. I've spent the last 25 years basically doing that with a little bit of expansion. I use math to understand people so that companies can better serve their customers. So not just cars, although I do like cars. I was always interested in doing applied sort of stuff. I just took a long time to find my way. Mm, that's interesting. And one of the storyline from there is that you should go to happy hours with your job. <laughs> for sure, for sure. His answer was, there's someone you have to meet. And his name was Harvey Bell, and he was a chief engineer, actually the chief engineer for the third generation Corvette. Mm. And he sat down with me over lunch. We both had our paper bag lunches in his office. And Harvey said to me, so can you tell me the partial derivative of sales with respect to fuel economy? <laughs> and I said, yeah, actually, I think I could do that. And so he formed a department at General Motors, and I ended up being the technical lead for that department where we were using conjoint analysis, which is a method. We can dig into that a little bit more later, but it's a method basically to get the partial derivative of sales with respect to fuel economy or other features of a product. Sounds super interesting. But before that, actually, where did the Bayesian part of the equation come from? <laughs> Do you remember how you first got introduced to Bayesian methods? So you might be surprised about this, but Bayesian methods have been floating around marketing for since the mid-90s. I could name sort of four people that have been really important. Mm. Greg Allenby, Peter Rossi, Peter Lank, Eric Bradlow started writing papers about Bayesian methods in the 1990s. Mm. And so when I was at GM, I was kind of seeing those papers come across my desk. Uh, I actually had them stacked up on my desk, but I never had time to read them. <laughs> but I knew they had Bayesian in the title or in the abstract, and I thought maybe I should know something about this Bayesian stuff. And then I decided to get a PhD in marketing and started taking classes at the University of Michigan. And one of the first classes I took was actually a Bayesian decision theory class in the engineering school with a guy named Stephen Pollack, <laughs> who had a very Socratic kind of method where he would give us a problem and then work through the problem and expected value of perfect information and all these other ideas applied to a wide variety of problems. So his interests ranged from everything from designing ways to irradiate cancer to, I guess he was really into shooting things shooting bombs. He had all these different puzzles. He kind of treated it like puzzles that he, he gave to the class. And so I learned Bayesian statistics and Bayesian inference very much in the context of Bayesian decision theory. And I think that has sort of made a world of difference in how I approach Bayesian methods. I'm not like all about the sampler. Yeah. I'm about what's the problem that we're trying to solve? What's the model we're going to use? And how does the information that we gather in support of the decision inform the decision? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. In the end, these four people you mentioned, I guess, had an influence on you and led to the work you did today. Yeah, I should probably mention my doctoral thesis advisor, who is also Bayesian mm. at Michigan, Fred Feinberg. 
Ah, yeah, okay. That's interesting that you say that actually marketing is quite passion and has been for quite a long time now, because it's something I often ask my guests is how Bayesian is your industry and why, but you already said that marketing is quite Bayesian, but maybe you can also say why base became important in marketing. The real important thing in marketing is that it goes back to using math to understand people. And one of the things we know about people is that one person varies very much from another person. My husband's a mechanical engineer and I'm like, it's not Newtonian physics. There's not <laughs> laws with a certain set of constants that describe all human behavior. There just isn't. Yeah. And one of the things that Peter Lang and Greg Allenby and Peter Rossi really brought into the field of the marketing was the use of hierarchical models to comprehend this wide variation. And that if you take a hierarchical model and estimate individual level parameters for each customer, it actually can be very useful because it helps you figure out who are the customers that might be most responsive to a price change? Mm -hmm. Who are the customers that really care about the fuel economy of their car? Who are the customers like me that really want a manual transmission and actually won't buy a car without a manual transmission? And so that is why the Bayesian methods entered into marketing, which really all about applying hierarchical models. We also have a lot of nonlinear models that also made the transition mm. and the adoption of these methods really fast. Because when you're doing like a binomial logistic model, or then we do a lot of multinomial logistic models where people are choosing things. Because a lot of the data I have is people choosing from a set of items. And so when you have data like that, you have this nonlinear model, and you also want to stack on a hierarchical model, and MLE methods just start to fall apart. So it was kind of necessity of the kind of models that we wanted to fit, our interest in heterogeneity, all came together in the 1990s. There's actually, you can't, the people on the podcast can't see, but behind me, there's a book on the shelf <laughs> called Bayesian Statistics and Marketing that was written by Alan B. Rossi and McCullough. And that was like the book that every doctoral student read in the early 2000s when I started as a doctoral student. So these methods were super important. Mm. One of the things I'm trying to do in my own work is to really push decision theoretic frameworks and Bayesian experimental design into marketing, because mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of opportunity for us to think more carefully about the value of the information that we collect. That's just an incredibly useful thing to think like, oh, how much would getting this data inform this decision? And decision theory gives us a framework to actually quantify that so that we can say, no, I don't want to collect that information because it's too much of a privacy risk and it doesn't affect how I'm going to treat the customer. But this other kind of data that I could collect about the customer is going to be incredibly useful in terms of providing her with a better service. And so it is worth and kind of formalizing some of those trade-offs between what information do we collect and what information do we not collect. Mm. Information seems like it's free, but it's not really. It has privacy-related costs. If you're going to do a survey, that has a cost on the burden on the customer. We need to start thinking of critically about those things. Okay. Yeah, that was going to be like a follow-up question of mine, which was how big the data are in marketing. Are you on the side of, oh, we never have enough data? Or are you more on the side of, oh, yeah, we don't have problem with our data. And actually, maybe sometimes the data are too numerous to use Bayesian methods. It depends on the problem. 
So for instance, we have oodles and oodles of data of people interacting with websites. That's an opportunity for a lot of marketing scientists to actually think about how to model that data and how we might use it to inform decisions. Right now, there's an army of people who do descriptive work on how many people came to the website, how many people looked at this product, how many people who looked at that product, bought that product, all doing very high quality descriptive work, but the sort of models to actually figure out how to use that information to better serve those customers to tailor websites are still kind of haven't made it into practice yet. So there's domains like that where we have way too much data. Take another domain like the thing that Harvey Bell asked me, which what is the partial derivative of sales with respect to fuel economy on the Corvette? That we have very little information. It's just a structure of there's just not that many cars on the market and people don't buy them that often. So we could observe those sales, Hmm. but we can't answer everything we would like to know from what we can observe in the world. My dissertation is actually about combining purchase data with survey data where we give people hypothetical choices. So I give you a choice between a Corvette that has really good fuel economy and it's an automatic transmission and it's going to be super comfortable for your passenger versus another one that has a manual transmission. It doesn't get good fuel economy and it's terribly uncomfortable for your passenger Mm -hmm. and can look at how people choose among those things. And that can give us the data we need to understand those kinds of preferences. Actually, one of my favorite questions to ask someone who's working in marketing science like you is for your particular company, what aspect of the consumer process is least well understood that you would most like to spend more money to get information on what customers are thinking, how they're interacting with you. Because I think we're often looking where the data is. So if you ask a retailer that question, they'll say, I know everything about the online store and I know nothing about what's going on in the physical store. I know what they buy, but I don't know what they touch, what they browse. So I would like to understand better how consumers are interacting with products in the store in the way that I understand it in the online stores. Or maybe we just close all the physical stores and then we won't have this problem anymore. (laughs) But I think it's really important to think about like, where is the next place that I need information and where would there be the biggest payoff to gathering information? I told you I was going to like pound this decision theory idea, right? (laughs) And that's... (laughs) Kind of how I see the world is we should be thinking about where is the next best place to collect information. That's super interesting, actually. And it's nice to see these different parts of marketing analytics, where, as you said, some territories of marketing analytics are more advanced in their use of statistical methods in general and Bayesian methods in particular. And then it seems like there is a lot to do. So it's great. Yeah, and some have more data, some have less data. Take another one. This is kind of a recent obsession of mine is we as marketers don't know if advertisements work. Hmm. Crazy. A big function of marketing is consumer persuasion. And a big way we do that is we buy advertisements from media company and we don't know the ROI. Yeah. And part of the problem is that advertisers will often do kind of do annoying things (laughs) like they advertise during holiday. Well, we know if you have more advertisements during holiday, you can never tell if it's the advertisement or it's just that it's holiday. So they kind of create these confounds in the data. And that's one of the things I've been really interested in is using experiments to break that so that we actually turn off advertising during holiday for some customers or for some regions so that we can get a clean read on what's the ROI of the advertising. 
Another thing, though, there's a really nice package that the folks at Google put out that uses Bayesian time series methods to Mm. come up with a counterfactual for no advertising. It's called Causal Impact is the name of the package. It's like synthetic controls on steroids for people who know about that. And their application specifically that they were interested in was advertising, making a counterfactual. What if the advertiser didn't advertise how many sales would they have gotten? We can compare that to what they got when they did advertise and get a measure of how much the advertisement works. Yeah, super interesting. Okay. I'll link to this package in the show notes because that sounds awesome. And I'm guessing then that from what you said, that you interact with a lot of different people and especially with non-technical people. So how do you go about explaining the methods you're using to them? And maybe do you have to convince them that they should try out Bayesian methods? I haven't had too much trouble. Among academics, we're very eclectic groups. So, mm-hmm. so for instance, people will ask me, like, how do you get your papers through the review process? Well, if I was writing for a medical journal, it might be very hard. But in marketing, we're a very eclectic group. There's all kinds of methods. And you usually just have to write a paragraph saying why you're using that method. So for instance, I have a project right now. It's a latent stratification of advertising experiments. All we have to do to get that paper through is to say, my object of inference is really this overall average treatment effect and using Bayesian methods, I can propagate forward the uncertainty, right? I can just stick that thing in the sampler and I get a full posterior for it. Now I can tell you how sure I am about that quantity. And so on the academic side, as long as you can make an argument like that, and Bayesian methods are so flexible, you can say, oh, you couldn't have done this with method of moments because for whatever reason, or, oh, I really want to propagate this uncertainty forward to this other thing that I'm trying to infer. All of those kinds of things work for academics. Mm. Practitioners is a different story. The first thing for practitioners that's important is making the methods accessible. If you say, I have this amazing cool thing and I want you to use it, but here's my crappy R code I wrote as a doctoral student and you have to run it and maybe it'll work and maybe it'll crash. It's really hard. So what happened with my dissertation is I actually went to a company called The Modelers and there I met this guy, Kevin Van Horn, who is the best Bayesian programmer I've ever met. Like... (laughs) He came from the defense industry doing Bayesian models for trajectories. And there was a unit test on everything. It was the cleanest code I'd ever seen. And he actually took some of the stuff I had written and we would work together to implement it in real production code. But getting a company to invest in a Kevin Van Horn was like really unusual situation that I fell into. We're in a much better shape. 15 years later, because Mm. we have tools like Stan and PyMC3, and it's easier to kind of push our stuff out there. But really, if you can get it to a package that just says inputs and outputs, like that causal inference package, where the Bayesian stuff is just entirely under the hood, so to speak. I told Mm. you I'm a car guy, girl, I use these car analogies. So think of it's like all the engine and the passenger and the driver don't see any of it. That's the way to get practitioners to adopt these methods. I really think that's the way to make it happen. So the work that the open source community is doing to make tools that I can use and then bury in a pack, I want to wrap a really tight package around the model that I've built so that users can just like click a button and there it is. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, yeah, it totally makes sense. I completely understand what you're saying. I'm also wondering about the way that you communicate the results of your analysis mm. to these people, to these kind of stakeholders. Maybe you have also some tips for listeners who are in industry. And I like to think I'm good at that. Yeah. <laughs> So I worked at the Wharton Customer Analytics Initiative for about six years. And when I left, they had some of the corporate people I'd worked with write little notes about what they thought about me. It was cute. <laughs> and one of them basically said, I thought you were really good at explaining stuff because like every time I talked to you, things were really clear. And then I was at a meeting where there was an academic and you turned and started talking to them in a language I didn't understand at all. <laughs> so it's really about being empathetic to the person you're talking to and putting a lot of effort into explaining in their terms. So mm -hmm. like if they use specific terminology in the marketing department, you want to make sure that your labels match their terminology. And then when you're presenting it, say you go to StanCon, You're going to change all the terminology to be the more standard statistical stuff. So it's a lot of translating work. The other big tip I give to students is start by telling people what you think they should do. <laughs> Now, you're just an analyst and they might not believe you. But if you tell them directly what you think they should do, they go, there's something interesting here. And then they start asking you questions And you can kind of go into technical details as they ask you for it. I think mm. a lot of students start by trying to impress you with their technical knowledge. And by the time you've done that, they're like, I don't even know. You're trying to confuse me or something. So if you just start by saying, I really think you should pull your catalog advertising from your very best customers. They go, hmm, we've always sent our catalogs to our very best customers. That's weird. Why? And then you can kind of, well, we actually started to model what was the effect of the catalog on individual customers. And we found for the customers who buy a lot, the catalog actually doesn't make them buy very much more. <laughs> then they're like, what kind of model is this? Oh, yeah, I'm using this cool tool. I'm building this Bayesian hierarchical model. It's a bit complicated to explain, but maybe one of the data scientists on your team would like to learn more about it. I have the code on my GitHub. Here it is. So you start from the top and work down rather mm. than a lot of analysts are so like, oh, I built this cool scikit-learn model, blah, 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 blah. And people just totally zone out. So you have to just start with what decision do I think you should make? Or if you can't get there, at least to, I found something out cool about your customers. Mm. Let me tell you about it and tell them what it is before you get into the details of how you figured that out. Mm. It makes you seem more like a magician, right? <laughs> <laughs> you're a wizard all the tricks but you don't have to tell people about those right away yeah exactly even though you're like us among Bayesians we're super excited about this and want to jump into the details but for decision makers you want to help them make the decision back to Harvey what's the partial derivative of sales with respect to fuel economy just answer that question yeah yeah I get what you say and that's super interesting and I think very actionable advice I want you to know that this is a safe place so you can be as technical as you want on this podcast it's okay <laughs> actually I want to talk a bit more about technical stuff now I think you have said a little about that, but let me ask you the question. If you have a favorite technical stack when working on Bayesian stuff. For sure. I'm a base R girl. <laughs> 
So I reluctantly occasionally use ggplot, but I really don't want to have to manipulate data in order to make a plot. I really just <laughs> want to make my plot. Mm. And I kind of know lots of tricks in base R. So base R plus Stan. So I adopted Stan maybe four or five years ago, started <laughs> to get interested in Stan. And that is my favorite sort of prototyping stack. That's what I'm trying to teach my doctoral students to do now. So, and that's going pretty smoothly, but yeah. I find that my junior collaborators are pulling me into Python lately. Oh, really? <laughs> so I have one collaborator who's doing like GPP types, Gaussian process prior type stuff in PyMC3. <laughs> he puts it in a notebook so I can read it. I don't think I could write it very well, but I can read it and figure out if like, oh, I'm not sure about this assignment here and we can find problems that way. The other collaborator is using Python and Stan. Mm. And so he puts the Stan text to the Stan in the notebook, like in a string in the R code so that I can see it. And then I can see what model he's running, see the output results. And that's working. I miss the, what's the package for visualization for Stan that the Stan folks did? Bayes plot. That's the one thing I miss in Python is we need a base plot for Python. Is there one that I should know about? I don't know much about base plot, but it's kind of the project of our Vizier actually is to have a platform agnostic uh, package where that you can use to analyze and diagnose and plot your models. Okay. And plot draws. So base plot has like if you get the draws into an array, then you can do things like parameter recovery plots on synthetic data. And that's the one that I really miss. Mm -hmm. I love a density plot with the true value used to generate the data with a vertical line. I use that a lot when I'm working with students because we're confirming that the workflow is good, that they actually are recovering parameters from synthetic data. That's an important part of any Bayesian workflow. Yeah. So I want quick visualizations to do that. So what's it? It's Arviz? Yeah, Arviz. The idea of RVZ is exactly that. No matter where you run your model, be it with Stan or Pyro or PyMC or TensorFlow Probability, you can take your results of your model, the trace, and you put it in RVs and you'll get exactly the same workflow to diagnose your models and to plot them. So it's exactly what you're talking about. When we're done, I'm going to send a note to Zia. Yeah, yeah, please do. Of course, I'm biased because I contribute to this package and I love the project because the project is to bring a lot of the community together into this package. And actually, one of the core developer, Ari Hartikainen, was on this podcast and he's a core developer of PyStan also. So okay. it's, it's really a cross-platform tool. So it's it's really good for that. And there is a Julia port, RVS.js. Oh, yeah, I encourage you uh, to check it out. <laughs> well, I'll encourage my junior Python collaborators to check yeah. it out for me. If yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, because you've got a really nice technical stack. I mean, all the tools you mentioned are just really amazing. And the good thing of having so many good tools available is that when you love R, well, then you can use R and Stan. When you love Python, you can use Python and Stan. You can use Python and uh, PyMC. There are so many cool stuff to use now to do Bayesian inference that I think weren't there, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago. Oh, I wrote my dissertation. I wrote the Metropolis within Gibbs sampler yeah. for my dissertation myself. It was in R and then parts of it got moved to C plus and it was just so painful. Mm. 
And now I can say to a student, I'm like, I think we should change this model here. Mm -hmm. We're not like derive the full conditionals, rewrite the functions for those, swap it in. I remember one of my um, advisors on my dissertation was a guy from GM named Mark Beltramo. And he said, I don't think this inverted wizard is a very good prior. Can you redo the whole thing with a metropolis step to do a uniform prior there just to make sure that we're getting the same results? And that was like two months of my life. Uh, and now it's like, just change that. With HMC, that would have been like a two-hour exercise instead of a two-month exercise. Yeah. The Metropolis was really slow, and then I had to tune it. Not to mention that you can run really big models now, even on your laptop, thanks to these tools. Yeah. The final report in my dissertation took a month to run on a <laughs> tower kind of server-type machine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so iterating on this kind of model is really painful. <laughs> there were two chains. <laughs> <laughs> one each on two different computers yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so basically yeah, the idea is we have a lot of amazing tools now just pick your favorite and work with it and also we're like learning really fast about identification issues in this model that we couldn't see before because we just never ran the samplers long enough to see oh sh- this posterior has another mode over there oh am i allowed to swear on this podcast on podcast you can do what you want <laughs> okay good <laughs> yeah yeah but i really get what you mean and actually that would be a nice time to go into the weeds a little so can you tell us which methods are the most useful maybe in marketing analytics and why you already talked a bit about modeling a heterogeneity of customers using hierarchical models yeah But let me tell you about this thing called conjoint analysis, because it's pretty cool because it's very widely adopted, very widely used by people who probably don't even know they're using Bayesian methods. So (laughs) conjoint analysis is a survey where I ask you to choose between sets of things. And there's a whole literature on how to design those kind of surveys. But just imagine we have this survey and I manipulate the features of the things. So maybe I'm giving you different kinds of orange juice and some has pulp and some doesn't have pulp. Or maybe I'm giving you different cars and some has a manual transmission, some has an automatic transmission. Oh, by the way, the heterogeneity distribution on transmissions is multimodal. Some people really like the automatics and some people really like the manuals. Um, (laughs) The size of the, the manual mode is getting smaller and smaller, though. Anyway, so we take that data and it's got a couple features that we have to account for heterogeneity. It's basically got repeated measures because we'll ask the person the same, like different versions of these questions over and over. So we might have anywhere from 15 to 30 observations for each person. And then we fit a multinomial kind of like the BLP type model, but we actually have the individual choice observations. So it's a multinomial response with some kind of heterogeneity distribution on top of that to Mm. account for the repeated measures across customers. Mm. And so that model came around the mid nineties into marketing and really cool company called Sawtooth Software ran with it. They implemented it in software There's a few other companies that company the modelers I talked about has their own code for fitting those models. There's another company now called Conjointly. They're all using HB samplers. They're not using HMC yet, but maybe they will soon. And Conjointly and Sawtooth both have like full web-based services. So you go into an interface, you set up your survey. It's like SurveyMonkey, but it has this HB model built into it. And so literally... Thousands of those are fit every week by different companies. It's like kind of a standard thing. So that's super popular. One of the other things I really like doing using Bayesian methods for in marketing 
our data fusion problems. So we have a lot of problems where we'll have two data sets and one is aggregate and the other is not aggregate. So for instance, I'm trying to build a model of people visiting stores. And for the online store, I have that rich individual level data. I know how often you came. Like I could build a Poisson model for the arrivals or some kind of model for the arrivals. But on the in-store side, all I know is an aggregate. Mm. So I know maybe who I sent promotions to that might be influenced to come to the store. And I know who checked out, but I don't know who came to the store and didn't check out. But I might have data on how many people came through the door because I have a counter on the door or something. So I have this like kind of mismatched aggregate, disaggregate data. And the nice thing about using Bayesian methods is that missing data can just be integrated over like as if it's a parameter. It's a little pain in the neck to do it in Stan because you actually have to declare it and everything. It was nicer in WinBugs because you just literally didn't pass the data in and it would start sampling that thing. Like if you passed in an NA in any data, WinBugs would sample on that thing. So I actually have a chapter. We can put that in the notes as well with Eric Bradlow, a how-to guide to doing data fusion in marketing. So those are both modeling side problems, Mm. like missing Mm. data, aggregated data. I should mention Eric Bradlow has a really cute paper on who has the coupon. Mm. I think that's the title of the paper or something like that. The idea is that we know how many coupons we sent and we know whether they got redeemed, but there's a whole bunch of people who have coupons and then chose not to buy that product. Mm. And so he builds a macro level model that assumes that there's some indicator for whether or not you have the coupon. And then he does data augmentation over that and can say, oh, you probably had the coupon, but because your preferences are different, you chose not to redeem it. Mm -hmm. That's kind of cool stuff you can do with the data fusion. We should put it in the show notes too. Yeah, yeah, I have a note to do that, so we'll do that. Awesome. And then the last project is the one that I wanted to talk about that I'm most excited about is this paper that's called Test and Roll. It's not a modeling paper. It's a paper about how you should think about setting the sample size for an A-B test. And if you think about it, the hypothesis test that we all learned in STAT 101, and it has an associated required sample size formula, is a really weird thing to apply to an applied A-B testing problem that a company is going to doing. Like, Mm. for instance, that formula really hinges on controlling the type 1 error. Now, if I'm sending two emails, the blue one and the red one, and the null is true, you and I don't believe in nulls, but if the null was true, it means the red one and the blue one perform exactly the same. Mm. Well, if I make a type one error, that means I decide that the red is better than the blue when really, truly they're the same. Who gives a shit? (laughs) If I send the red one when they're both the same, it doesn't matter. It didn't affect my profit at all. Yeah. And so I was thinking about that. Actually, another Bayesian who works in marketing named Steve Scott kind of put that idea in my head. And I said, well, wait a second. What if we just figured out what the optimal sample size would be, assuming our goal is to earn profit? So the subtitle of the paper is actually Profit Maximizing A-B Testing. And so the idea is really, okay, let me write down my expected profit function, assuming I have a limited population of customers to deal with. 
because I don't know about you, but there's some limit to the number of customers we can reach. So assume you have a limited population of customers. So you're sending an email, you have a list of a certain size. What would be the optimal number of people to A-B test on, assuming that you deploy the better performing treatment than the remainder of the list? Mm -hmm. And so that sets up a natural explore exploit problem, which is how if I make the test bigger, then I'm more likely to pick the right one to deploy to the rest of the population. But I also have less population left to earn that higher profit on. Yeah. And so I ended up teaming up with a guy named Ron Berman, who's sadly, I have not persuaded to be Bayesian yet. He's really pragmatic. I had done the whole thing as beta binomial models and was, I had R code to do it. And he said, Ellie, can we switch this all to normals and I'll close all the integrals analytically for you? <laughs> I resisted this at first, but eventually he convinced me. So the paper actually has a sample size formula based on that the outcome is normally distributed. Mm. We did a bunch of testing to make sure it actually works okay. And the normal approximation is fine unless you get to cases where the sample sizes are really small. That's actually in the back of the paper. But it's so cool. We have this new sample size formula. And the coolest thing about it is that the sample size formula increases with the standard deviation. It's linear in the standard deviation if you're profit maximizing. Do you remember the classical sample size formula? <laughs> it's linear in the variance. Yeah, yeah. So it hooks way up and our sample sizes stay nice and small. Yeah. So if people were to use it, they'd be using much smaller sample sizes and making bigger profits in the process. Mm. So it's kind of like this total win-win thing. Yeah. If people are interested in that, we can link to the paper, but also there's a sample size calculator we'll put out in the notes too. So it's at testenroll.com. You can actually go and use our sample size calculator in a little shiny app that we built. Yeah, that sounds super useful and interesting. Yeah. But now you're like, where's the cool modeling? Well, the thing is to do a Bayesian sample size problem, you have to have priors. Mm. So we were sort of sitting around scratching our head going, okay, we have this sample size formula, but if someone were to really use it, where would they get priors? And it turned out that Ron had a data set of over a thousand A-B tests run on a big A-B testing platform. And so then we put that into Stan into a hierarchical model where it's like, each test has its own effect, but those come from a population level distribution. Mm -hmm. And then we use that population level distribution as the prior for the sample size planning. So, and now if you had your own set of tests that represented the kind of tests you were going to do, you'd want to run your own stand model. Mm -hmm. But yeah, anyway, that's the idea behind that paper. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And uh, we'll put all of that in the show notes because I'm sure a lot of listeners will find that super helpful in the work and yeah. in their learning. Congrats on that. I really love this project because it's like really cool Asian stuff applied to help people make better decisions. So it's really kind of the illustration of why Bayesian methods are so cool <laughs> and useful. <laughs> I like to think so, but yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Actually, let's talk about your teaching now, which is a bit like what you're going to do at Our Ladies Philly, but you also have a lot of classes that you do for undergrads, for masters, for PhD. And of course, you're teaching about Bayesian inference, but causal inference. So I'm wondering how do you integrate all the cool Bayesian methods you told us about? How do you integrate that into your teaching at a business school and more generally when you teach marketing audiences? So I struggle with that a little bit because in some cases it would be just better to teach them the Bayesian methods and nothing else. Mm. 
But if I send a master's student who's going to go work on a data science team at a company out into the world and only know Bayesian methods, people are going to think there's something wrong with them. (laughs) So I end up doing a lot of work where I will kind of show them the Bayesian version of something they've already learned. So like, so I have an R book with Chris Chapman. And in that book, we often have like a section where we show the Bayesian version of something. So like, in chapter seven, where we cover regression, which is all done with LM, at the end of the chapter, we show MCMC regress and MCMCH regress, which are linear regression and hierarchical linear regression. Those are from the MCMC package in R. And so you can kind of transition them over. Like they already know how to interpret coefficients from the LM. So let me just show you this table. Oh, let me tell you a few things are a little different here. And then people can pick it up that way. That's not my ideal. Like, I really wish I could just teach them straight Bayesian, but conditional on people already knowing or having to learn classical methods, that's one strategy I use. The other thing, and this is another car analogy, you don't teach someone how to drive a car by explaining how the engine works. Mm. I have a couple of doctoral students who are taking a Bayesian inference class in biostats, and they had to code a Metropolis Hastings sampler before they were allowed to start working in Stan or Windbugs. I'm glad they did it because I want my doctoral students, it's not that hard to code up a Metropolis for a logistic regression or something. Yeah. So it's a good exercise for them. But for the master's students, I would yeah. never do that. Yeah. It's just like not... So I try to move people from like, I think of kind of three levels of Bayesian tools. You've got the totally canned packages that do a single model. So Sawtooth software that does that one model for marketing or MCMC regress that does the regression or MCPack is a nice package because it has all these pre-canned models. I don't know what the Python, there's Python packages that also have pre-canned Bayesian models, right? That's like level one. Level two is starting to use a tool like WinBugs or Stan or PyMC3, where you really have to start then thinking about testing and how do I have a clean workflow that I know that the model I built is identified and it's working. But it, it seems like I'm ready to give that up to the open source community. Like, why should I be writing algorithms when Michael Badencourt is writing algorithms? Like, that's so, like, I'm not going to be better at that than him. I'm better at thinking about the problem domain. Yeah, And so these tools have done a great job to separate out the work of those of us that think about, he can't write a generative model for a marketing problem. <laughs> he doesn't know enough about marketing to do it. And so I really love these tools that have allowed us to focus on our problem domain and the generative model that represents our domain and then leave it to other experts to write samplers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I love that idea. Focus on what you're best at and use the work of people who are really good at what they do. And like that, we can have all the tools we have right now, like Stan, like PyMC and so on. I do try to send money to NumFocus every year because I value it so much and I want to support those other researchers who are doing things so I don't have to. That's kind. And thank you. That's really nice. Well, I encourage people to do that too. (laughs) But yeah, that's interesting to see that more and more people are using open source tools and especially in research where you have quite a bit. Actually, I'm quite surprised to see that in marketing, you use so many open source tools that's really great because I know other fields like economics or else who are still using commercial software, which can be a problem for reproducibility, for accessibility. So it's really great that you are using R, Python, Stand, PyMC, and so on in the marketing field. 
There are marketers eclectic. So there's a, a lot of economists. Actually, Ron and I have a little R slash Stata thing going on. So occasionally he'll tell me something's too slow and then go run it in Stata to prove that Stata is faster. <laughs> I think it's about 50-50. He's right. Like sometimes I'm right. Sometimes he comes back. He's like, no, that's fine. Sometimes he comes back and finds an R package that solves the problem. So mm. that's the cool yeah. thing about open source. Right? Exactly. Like, that's the power. That's the power of open source. Uh, probably yeah. someone somewhere had your problem already and fixed it. So <laughs> yes. Yes. And Ron happens to be a better Googler than me. I'll just keep fighting a problem and he'll be like, someone else has this problem. Yeah, I'm yeah. going to find the solution. <laughs> That's actually a good skill in data science. It is a good skill. But all these courses that you do sound really awesome. I, I have to say, I went to a business school and I never had any class about Bayesian stats. So I'm really happy that you're doing that. And that's really awesome. Yeah, oh. I, I do it in like stealth mode though. <laughs> The title of the class is never Bayesian. Well, for the doctoral students, yeah, yeah. I have a class in Bayesian and causal inference. But for the master's students, I don't really tell them until we're in it. And I don't want the, shh, we don't want the dean yeah. to know. Exactly. Yeah, no problem. We'll keep this episode between us. Okay, good. <laughs> no, but that's a good tactic, though, because students are in the room. They can't leave. So now you can teach them any Bayesian stuff you want. Exactly, exactly. So we're going to talk about the hierarchical multinomial regression today. <laughs> exactly. Um, actually, I wonder what are the essential skills or maybe the rules of thumb that you're trying to instill in your students? And also, which mistakes do you think are the most common? Oh, that's a tough one. Yeah. You didn't put that in the notes in advance, so I'm totally unprepared. I think the biggest thing that especially novice data scientists that are like, oh, their cousin told them to get into data science, so they're getting this degree in business analytics, and they get very intensely interested in the data and the methods and forget to learn about a problem domain. So if you don't know a problem domain, it's really hard to use these tools. And so I always encourage them, like, I don't care if it's finance that you're interested in or marketing or whatever, learn one of those things deeply. Don't just keep jumping around to the latest, coolest method. I'll tell you a funny story. So I teach a course in marketing experiments is the title of the course. So it's like how to do A-B testing for master's students. And it, they get it at the end of their business analytics program. So they're all tooled up. So on the first day, I say, here's a data set. It has whether or not people donated to the school and whether or not they attended an event. And so it's got a classic kind of endogeneity in it. There's this lurking Z. People who love the school are more likely to attend events and also more likely to donate to the school. And so even if you do a regression and find out there's a positive correlation, you can't really say something like, oh, we should have more events to get more people to donate to the school. And so that was what I had planned to teach them. But I start off and I say, you guys are all great and you have all these courses. So here's this data set. Do your best. And the first time I ever did that, about 10 minutes later, a kid calls me over. He's like, hey, professor, I have to show you this. <laughs> and he's showing me this model that he's built. It's like, I don't know, a deep neural network model or something. I don't know what it is. Some package that he had. And he's showing me the results. I'm like, okay, so about the variable of whether or not they attended events oh, professor, it dropped that variable. It, that wasn't predictive. <laughs> and I was like, wait, I told you the question you were supposed to answer was, should we have more events? <laughs> <laughs> like if you're a junior data scientist, 
you don't just build predictive models. Like yeah. if you showed that to your boss, your boss is going to be like, I don't know what to do with that. It's just a bunch of numbers on the page. So like really talking to decision makers and understanding what decision they're trying to make and then really carefully thinking through how does the model support that decision. Mm. You could have the area under the curve number of 0.99, but if it doesn't have the variable people were interested in the model, then it doesn't help them decide how to set that variable. Yeah. So I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. That's also a reason why I love the Bayesian framework. In the Bayesian framework, you have to think about your priors. And if you have to think about your priors, then you have to think about your domain knowledge and what you already know about the data before seeing it and how your model is not something you're doing in a vacuum like just picking up something from a shelf that's already made, but really trying to tailor your model to your use case. If you're using a package like PyM3 or Stan, yeah. so yeah. The, I do still find this mistake among users of totally pre-canned models. Yeah, that's true. They're like, oh, I found this code and apparently the input yeah. data structure matches mine and they don't even really know what's coming yeah. out of it. That's a real problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's also a dilemma because these pre-canned models, as you say, are quite useful to draw people into Bayesian inference because they look like what they already use on the frequentist side. But at the same time, you don't want them to get stuck in these tools because you want them at one time to come and go fully Bayesian with Stan or PyMC or TensorFlow probability or else. And really think carefully about the model. The story, I like to tell my students, a model is a story for where data comes from. Yeah, exactly. If you're going to write that story down mathematically, you need to go find out where the data comes from Yeah. by talking to people. If you have a data set, if you can go watch them collecting the data, that can make a world of difference in your understanding of the data. Like literally go watch how is this data collected. So if you're using data from web analytics, mm. go to the website and experience yeah. it and understand mm. what's happening. Yeah, exactly. That's super interesting stuff. And I wish we could talk about that for hours. But yeah, you're going to have a hard job editing this. Yeah, but that's what I do for every episode. It's always hard, but we could talk about that for hours, but time is running low and I don't want to take too much of your time. So what I want to ask you maybe still on this teaching side is based on this and your experience teaching Bayesian methods, how do you recommend people structure their learning? Maybe what should they focus on when they start learning Bayes stats? And what do you advise they should focus on when they are more advanced maybe in their learning? So I'm mentoring, I think, four people right now who are learning to use either Stan or PyMC3. And the biggest thing I think is I encourage them to get a clean workflow of testing. Mm. So if you don't have that, you can end up in a rut. That's an English word for like a hole in the road that you get stuck in or car analogies. I love car analogies. <laughs> so you don't want to get stuck like that. And you can be stuck there for a very long time and not really see what's going on. Mm. There's some nice work being put out by the stand group on kind of workflow and testing. Like that's an ideal that you don't always get to. So it's important for students to know you can't always be perfect at executing that. But if you can at least generate data, I find students when they're writing the code to generate data. So I know you can generate data in Stan, 
but I'd like students to write their own Python or R code to generate synthetic data because usually they're more familiar with Python or R. A, it's more comfortable for them. But when they do that, they realize there's like a total disconnect in the model that they wrote down in math, like until you actually write the code for it. So I like to see students going through that process of writing code to generate synthetic data, generating multiple synthetic data sets, ideally over a prior, but sometimes that's too conceptually hard to get to. Then fitting the model and looking at the posterior estimates so that you kind of get a feel for how the whole thing works. Yeah, that makes sense. And it links to what we we're talking about earlier, the story that your model is trying to tell about the data. Yeah. And so if you write code to make the data, sometimes when you're thinking that the time it takes to do that, I know it would be faster to just write some stand code and then generate data from the stand code. But the time you spend writing it in another language, you're thinking about that process. Exactly. It also helps you sometimes to understand why the model has some difficulties with your data. You didn't think about that. And then you're, oh, yeah, okay, I see the model has difficulty with this type of data because of this or that. So I should try to implement that to integrate that in the model. That's super useful. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay, maybe one last quick question that I often ask guests before asking you the two final questions, because I love on this podcast focusing on failures more than on successes, because in the end, you learn more from what you failed on. And mm. as I often say to people, when you're working on a model, only one iteration will work and it will be the last one. So be prepared to do a lot of failed iterations. Like you basically have to do N minus one failed iterations. So be prepared for that. I'm wondering personally when you work, what are the most common difficulties you encounter with your models and your data and how do you usually solve them? So the biggest thing for me are identification issues, mm. which crop up both in synthetic data, but then sometimes the real data is less informative or has more misspecification error yeah. than the synthetic data doesn't have that misspecification error. Mm. And so at both stages, that manifests as the sampler spits back the prior or drifts. If the prior is really wide, the sampler is just drifting around to Neverland and I think it's partially because I have an interest in missing data and aggregation problems. Mm -hmm. So I often like write a micro model and then try to fit it with aggregate data. I often run into these identification issues. And for me, it's like game on. Now we just know that we have to do it N times. <laughs> we don't know what N is, but we just have to keep doing it, changing the model. Maybe there's an error term that actually isn't well identified or this kind of thing. So I really enjoy that part of the process, mm. but it is failure after failure. And in the olden days, it didn't fail very fast. Mm -hmm. So it would be like, I run my sampler overnight and I wake up in the morning and there's still an identification problem there. <laughs> <laughs> Now it's like you wait five minutes and you realize it's still there. Yeah, I see what you mean. Okay, that's really helpful. Yeah, the nice thing about OLS is when it fails quickly and loud. Yeah. Exactly. But that's actually how you learn. So that's the great thing with that. And the great thing with HMC is that it spits out some warnings and... Yeah, it fails louder and more quickly, but not as fast as OLS. So when I send my check to, and I'm focused this year, maybe I'll write on the back, like, please make it fail faster. <laughs> <laughs> No, I really think that's a big area for methods research in Bayesian methods. Yeah. Because us as users will be able to get more and more out of it if we can make it break faster. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you will be able to iterate more often and more quickly. Yeah, yeah. completely agree. 
Well, Ali, I think it's time to ask you the last two questions I ask every guest sure. at, the, at the end of the show. So the first one is if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? So I kind of drifted into marketing by mistake. I told you it was a chief engineer who was interested in designing products that kind of pulled me into marketing. But I've started to realize that marketing is really the study of how people make decisions and how our attempts to persuade them work. And we're only scratching the surface on that. We don't really understand how people make decisions or how our attempts to persuade them work. And just to be a little bit timely with the pandemic circulating around the globe, how people make decisions and how we persuade them to change their behavior is becoming massively important. I think it was always important, but right now we can really see that it, this is a super important problem. Yeah. And I, I would tackle that with all kinds of methods, maybe Bayesian methods, mm -hmm. but we also need to be doing the right kind of experimentation, the right kind of observation of people. And really, I think someday we will have a much better, deeper understanding of how people make decisions and how we persuade them to change their mind about decisions that they're going to make. Yeah. Yeah, interesting, interesting answer. And the second question is, if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive, or fictional, who would it be? So I have to say Don Rubin and Rod Little. Mm. So Don Rubin is a statistician at Harvard. Rod Little is a statistician at Michigan. Yeah. And I had the great pleasure of taking a class with Rod Little. Mm. And I've read a lot of Rubin's work, of course. I think the reason I would want them together is that Rod Little is a very practical guy. Like he talks about multiple imputation. If you ask him about it, he'll talk about it in the context of trying to help survey researchers in medicine. He explains what their tools were, what resources they have available, what the limitations were. And Don Rubin, like from his writing, I've never met him, thinks very clearly about problems from a very theoretical perspective. Mm. And so I would love to be at a dinner party with both of them. Yeah and see how that plays out together. And of course, they have the book, um, I forget what it's titled, but it's about missing data. Yeah. And I was from a variety of methods perspectives, but it does have a heavy Bayesian slant, or as they say, model-based inference methods. And so I just think it would be fun to listen to the two of them together, think about problems from both a very practical and a very theoretical perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that sounds like a nice dinner. I hope they hear you the next time you're in Fidi, guys. That would be great. Yeah. Well, Ellie, it was a pleasure really talking with you. This was the best way to spend a Friday afternoon. <laughs> This was fun. Well, I'm really glad you felt that way. And I'm sure listeners will hear your passion and enthusiasm for your work and for the Bayesian methods. And honestly, I really enjoyed this deep dive into how Bayesian methods are used in marketing analytics. Was that the level of technical detail? I think maybe it was too light, but... Oh, no, I think to be quite diverse about the technical levels of the episodes and actually people enjoy that. I don't like to go too long into that because you can lose some of the people. I think it was well-balanced. And in any case, I have to say, I'm not surprised to see patient methods used in marketing analytics. And it's really great to see them becoming even more popular. And I'm sure you helped a lot of listeners today integrating these methods into their workflow. As always, I'll put resources and a link to your website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. Thank you again, Ellie, for taking the time and being on this show. Thanks so much for having me. 
this has been another episode of Learning Bayesian Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher and visit learnbayesstats.anvil.app for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true Bayesian state of mind. That's learnbayesstats.anvil.app. Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Baba Brinkman, Fit MC Lars and Mega Ram. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash learnbayesstats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a good base. You can change your predictions after taking information. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good base. Change calculations after taking fresh data. Those predictions that your brain is making, let's get them on a solid foundation.